Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Unlocking just a little bit of dollar weakness, Lisa. The data in China stabilizing just a little bit. Risk appetite picks up. Can this be a sustainable story going into 2020? I'm watching oil because oil is telling another story. You're seeing a little bit of pressure there uh, trying to get above zero, but uh, hard to say because right now this trade deal isn't necessarily firmed up in any way, shape or form and is not giving people confidence. But for now, it's not just that. It's also the tone out of Chinese manufacturing data as well as some other uh, bits as well. So we bring in Jens Nordvig. He's yeah. with us in the studio. Great to have him with us. Exante Data founder and CEO. Good morning to Jens. Thank you, thank you. Your thoughts on the trade story, the trade truce, the phase one agreement. What are you telling clients? What is it? Well, we we have a deal. I think uh, even though the document has not been signed, I think it's going to be very, very difficult after the communication we've had from both sides not to get this deal done. So uh, that's the direction we're heading. And it is a turning point. Like we have some rollback of tariffs. It's not dramatic uh, thing to lower from 15 to seven and a half on on a portion of the the tariff stuff but it is a step in the right direction and i think it's important so um i think also just if you think about the currency outlook can china really allow their currency to depreciate from here like we had that big psychological break of seven uh, a couple of months ago and now we're trading literally at seven zero zero i don't think we can have it trading weaker than than seven on a, on a in a meaningful way in in coming weeks it's just not going to make the deal look good so i think uh, the downside is very capped for the chinese currency that's very important for em currencies globally and it's important for the dollar direction globally as well. So maybe that fits in in the this description of what's going on with the DXY as well. Well, with the, with <coughs> trade, there has to be an opportunity to play it. How how do you play a phase one trade deal? I mean, we want to clear uncertainty. We want to be more optimistic. But then, how do you affect that in currency pairs? Okay, so uh, I'll answer in two well, ways. So the, well, the first, the first way seconds, to answer so is like we, you, we, we have uh, some empirical models where you say, okay, what's the new equilibrium based on these uh, tariff reliefs? Okay. And that gives you 696. So there's a little bit of uh, appreciation in store there. And then there's the broader global dynamic, which is like an EM trending uh, trade that uh, can, can run much longer than that. John, I like that you ask, is this sustainable? Uh, I, I, you know, I, I'm struggling with that question and I'm struggling with the idea that the dollar can continue to weaken because, yes, we have the fact that the December 15th tariffs aren't going to go into effect. But other than that, basically, this phase one deal is let's figure it out as we go. We'll roll back tariffs, perhaps as uh, China complies with different uh, different phases. How does this improve confidence among CEOs in order to make investment, which is a key issue here, right? So I think the CEO question is important, and that could impact the timing of when we get a lift to PMIs and so forth. But there's a couple of things going on at the same time, right? The, the Brexit situation where we have a removal of tail risk is also going to be helping to lift PMIs in Europe, not in this week's numbers, but probably in the next batch or two. Uh, so I, I, I do think in terms of global growth, we got to a very, very low level of, of growth expectations, actually weaker than in the downturn we had in 2015-16. Uh, so the, 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 the bar we have to beat is extremely low. And I think there's a bunch of reasons now I think that momentum is improving. And uh, for the dollar, 
the most important variable is global growth. It's much more important than what the Fed is doing. So if we have that bottom, I feel very strongly that the dollar will trade weaker next year. So this is really important, Jens. One thing you've done brilliantly over the last couple of years is emphasize how little rate differentials tell you about the direction of the dollar over the last couple of years. So talk to me about global growth and flows, investor flows into places like Europe, Asia, that can really unlock some dollar weakness in the coming 12 months. Yes, I think I think one of the things that's really important over the last um, five, six weeks is that US investors are starting to put more risk capital to work in international markets. So US investors were incredibly cautious over the summer and actually repatriated investments from abroad back to the US, and that has changed. So this goes hand in hand with this bottoming of global growth expectations. There's a very strong correlation between what those expectations are and, and what those flows look like. And that is key to the dollar, right? And that's the, the one of the factors that can be separate from the rate differentials is if the equity flow goes more international. So Tom Keen, the key question is for your triple levered cash fund, uh, is it going to be cash in dollars or is it, it dollar denominated or euro denominated? Or, or, or euro or, or, or pound after your trip to Europe, or after your trip to London, yeah. yeah. It's a, the high point of the European trip was the interview with a gentleman who runs Harrods <clears throat> over uh, how to unload the wallet in Knightsbridge. Yes, that was the high point. Um, Did you pre-tape that one? I, I missed it. No, yeah, you were in, in the, the bar. you were in the Manolo Blahnik uh, <laughs> up on the top floor. There, a little kiosk there. Jens, great. We're going to get a trade deal. We're going to go weak dollar. I still want to know how to express it. Do I do it through a bundled group of of EM? Are there one or two? Are they true Pacific EM? Are they Eastern Europe? Are they N11? What are they? Okay. Yeah, so I, I think initially you expresses was EM, so dollar Mex is one, dollar Indonesia is one, dollar Taiwan is one. We talked about it on the on the TV segment that uh, there are places where they cannot intervene like they've intervened in the past. Taiwan could be a really interesting regime shift on that front. Mm. So those are some of the ones I would look at. Good, Jens Nordvik, thank you so much. Yeah, it's good to see you uh, today. Too short a visit. here in the United States of America before John Farrow dives in with Lisa on water strategy. We can do that with David Kelly, who's with J.P. Morgan. He's had a global strategy for this, that, and the other part of the of the great beast, and he joins us this morning. You, you did a wonderful degree in Ireland, and then you enjoyed Lansing, Michigan. Mm-hmm. If yep. you go directly west from Lansing, Michigan, there's Kenosha, Wisconsin. Yep. There's a company there called Snap-on Tools, which is as basic as you can get. 16% total return, 16% dividend growth, trading at next to nothing mm-hmm. compared to this market. Do I buy more Snap-on Tool, Kenosha, Wisconsin, or do I end up buying some fancy pants tech thing out on the West Coast? Which... I didn't think that was a question you were going to ask me this morning. But, uh, but that's the arch question after all, 26% this year. I, I think, that, I think there, there, there are large distortions within the, Huge. US, within, within Huge. the U.S. market. But we've got to remember that as well, so long as you're in a momentum up stage, I think there's more and more money going into ETFs, into passive strategies, which is actually helping 
momentum stocks. So uh, I wouldn't want to make a short-term call on that. I think I think I think the bigger point for investors is international is cheap relative to the U.S. Okay. And I think that I think you know I, you need to you need to make your money these big asset allocation calls. I, I wanted to get that out of the way, John. Other than to say that the Spartans of Michigan State have a hockey team this year to die for. I feel like that's the only reason you brought up Got that, that right. question. Yeah, Spartan <laughs> hockey. If you're not familiar with some of the notes that David Kelly puts out please reach out to him because there's some great lines in there there's an old saying that the reason some people bash their heads against the wall is because it feels so good when they stop yeah what are you referring to david i'm referring to all the all this progress on trade i mean if you go back four years ago we didn't have brexit we did we had an old nafta and we didn't have trade war with china and now we've got some uh, we've got a usmca which looks like it's going to pass to, to deal with uh, to sort of as an after 1.0001 uh, we've got, I think Brexit will finally be resolved in a more comfortable way than people fear. Um, and, uh, you know, we, we have a phase one deal with China to move back a few steps on the, on the road we were on. But in the end, all it's doing is, re, you know, reducing the amount of mutilation we were doing to ourselves. Uh, it's not really progress in, in, in the long scheme of things. Let's, let's continue with this metaphor of banging your head against a wall uh, and then stopping and, and being really happy that you stopped. The question is, we're now getting back to can the real global economy generate the kind of growth that is baked into the valuations in equities and risk assets in 2020? And right now, the consensus seems to be yes, uh, given the certainty that we're getting from the trade truce. But do you disagree based on this idea that we're not moving forward necessarily? We're just not banging our head no, against the wall. Anymore? No, I think no, I think we I think you have to have a different story somewhat on the economy and on markets. Uh, it is true that in absolute terms valuations are expensive. But if you look at it relative to, to cash, relative to bonds around the world, valuations are cheap. And so long as you buy the idea that the global economy is going to grow slowly but not generate inflation, you're going to have these low rates, you're going to have central banks falling over themselves to be easy, and that still means that there's nowhere else for the money to go. So money is getting uh, funneled into, into global equities. So let's put some capital to work then. The regional breakdown going into 2020, mm -hmm. Europe, Asia, EM. How are you thinking about that breakdown at the moment, David? Uh, I would be uh, EM uh, first, uh, probably... Um, yeah, Asia first probably, and then, and then uh, Europe, Japan, um, you know, second and third. I think the, I think one of the key things is rising trade tensions hurt the rest of the world more than they hurt the U.S. And that they also contribute to a higher dollar. Falling trade tensions therefore give you a lower dollar, and also benefit the big traders of the world, which are EM countries. So that's where I think you'll see the bounce, both in terms of lower dollar and better performance from EM stocks. So that's kind of where I'd want to be overweight. David, I'm struggling right now because I'm thinking about what you're saying, this idea of low inflation, central banks stimulating, risk assets uh, look relatively cheap. That's been the story for 10 years. At yes. what point does that run out? At what point does this create a real problem? Well, it creates a problem if inflation comes back. But there's a, there's a funny thing going on in the global economy, and that is that income is getting less and less equally distributed. And, and the, you know, aggregate demand is when people with money want to buy stuff. And the problem in, in the global economy right now as the people who have money don't want to buy stuff, and the people who want to buy stuff don't have money. And so long as that, that income, dis, income inequality grows, you're actually dra you don't have enough aggregate demand in the economy. That's what's holding inflation low. So you know, the, the irony is if, you ever, if we ever do fix the problem for middle-income consumers, for lower-income consumers, then we'll have inflation, and then but that's when, when the, that? the, the, the new Foreign Affairs magazine is absolutely exquisite. It's the strongest issue they've ever done, including the Nobel laureates Jerry Z. Muller's in there on capitalism. How do you affect a policy 
to lift the have-nots without diminishing the haves? Uh, well, I mean, it's, it's productivity. You're trying to reduce some of the uh, non-productive things you do. I mean, we've got, we've got a lot of negative sum games going on in the world in, the, in things like defense, in terms and trade, of pollution. trade, 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 and trade. Yeah. yeah, all of these things. So you're trying to get, get rid of the things that are hurting you. You introduce more certainty. I think what you, you also try to reduce currency volatility. I mean, we should get back to a situation where the United States, Europe, China are actually talking about you know, exchange rates and trying to make this, this uh, them, them less volatile. Because right now, everybody's keeping rates low, un unreasonably low, to try and push their currency down. And that is, a, a, I think, in the end, just distorting for the global economy. Can we do a 10-year bet? And that's what it is. It's going to yeah. be a bit of a gamble. Let's do a 10-year bet. Where are rates going to be at the ECB in 10 years' time? Higher or lower? I think, well, they could hardly be lower, so they will be higher. The question is, are they a little bit higher or much higher? And that really gets back to the first question I'm asking, because eventually, you know, think about this growth in financial assets. What is a financial asset? A financial asset is a coupon which says that you can buy some part of the goods and services produced by the real economy. Now, what we've seen is an explosion in the value of financial assets, um, while the global economy is kind of like a tortoise. Eventually, when people cash in those assets, you've got an inflation problem. We don't have it right now, but if you're going to you know, ask me, could we have that within the next 10 years in Europe or indeed in the United States? Yes, we could. Well, let's have the same question for the Federal Reserve then. 175, mm -hmm. higher or lower at the Fed in the next 10 years? Um, I think, again, by the end of 10 years, I think we'll be higher than that because that is, it's still, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's less than the rate of inflation. I mean, you, you know, the whole... The whole concept of saving is that I don't eat 10 apples today because you will give me 11 apples in the future. What we're telling people today is, you know, don't consume 10 apples today because we'll give you nine apples in the future. That is nuts. And reason, it is not sustainable in the long just run. Just to put it out there, the reason I ask this is Bank of America have come out with a fantastic piece about the last 10 years, what performed well, what didn't perform well, which was the most activist central bank, which was the least activist central bank. The least activist central bank worldwide over the last 10 years, Japan, one rate cut, no hikes. Mm -hmm. And the same was probably true for the 10 years previous to that as well, that once we get down to these kind of levels, we're stuck here. Yes. Why is that going to be different for Europe, different for the United States over the next decade? Well, it, it be, because, as I said, it is, it is fostering a boom in financial assets. And eventually, if those financial assets end up in the hands of people who actually want to spend the money rather than save the money, then you have a growth in inflation. And the key thing here is inflation. I mean, I know the Japanese have been looking for inflation, but if they ever distributed income, uh, and it's somewhat egalitarian, more egalitarian in, in Japan, but you, you st if, if you get more consumer spending going right. and, um, among lower and middle income consumers, then you could end up with inflation. And that's what triggers, so changes this whole story. You and I knew each other long ago and far away in Boston when a CD was 9% or 7%. Yeah. It ain't there anymore. Yes. Is there any evidence a central bank can quote unquote reflate? Um, well, they, they can push, push up short term rates if, if they if they want to. The problem is they run they they lose their nerve. I mean, you know, did the Federal Reserve really need to ease three times this year? No, uh, but they did it. Um, so can they do it? Yes, they can push up short term rates, and and in the end, I think that they, I think they should, uh, because I think we should get back to more normal monetary policy, and that will in the end re re reduce. Uh, distortions uh, around the global economy, but they could yeah. do it. I'm not saying they're going to. Next time, David Kelly on where the Irish border is. I don't know where it is after the election. Maybe we'll talk to him well, about I that. Think it's, I, think it's, I think it's now in the Irish Sea. <laughs> I think it's in the Irish Sea. David Kelly, <laughs> thank, thank you, you so much as always with J.P. Morgan. Just thrilled to Anytime. have him uh, here.
What we need now, not a clinic on the equity markets. We've done that a little bit this morning. But, John, I think we've really got to dive into full faith and credit. We do, and we can do that with Priya Misra, Global Head of Rate Strategy at TD Securities. Priya, great to have you with us on the program. Tom's got a few questions on repo, but let's start this conversation where we picked up at the top of the hour. 10-year rates, 184, no big shift higher. Why? So thanks for having me. Always good to chat with you all. Um, so, uh, you know, what we heard on Friday in terms of the deal, it's phase one. It's agricultural purchases. I mean, does it remove entire business uncertainty around tariffs for all of next year and, and beyond? I, I would argue not. I think just two weeks ago, we heard from the president that we were going to impose tariffs on uh, Brazil and Argentina. You know, the, the French tariffs are out there. Our view is that's all we're going to get for, for uh, U.S. China is going to be phase one. I mean, it took them like three months after we had the deal in principle to actually get this somewhat written down. So to try and get phase two, phase three, which are all much more difficult structural issues, our thought is we're not actually going to get this until the election. So the global growth dynamic, I think, you know, it did take away, I think, some of the negative or, or the, the, the worst case scenario has been removed. I think the escalation of tariffs, which we were all nervous, could that happen on, on Sunday? That's been taken off. And therefore, I think equities liked it. But for rates to sell off much more from here, I think we need clear evidence that business uncertainty is going away, uh, that business investment is going to pick up, and the consumer remains uh, resilient. I think all of those questions are still there. So I would yeah. argue we're near the the high end of the rate range. Priya, is the, if that's the case, then is the rates market sending a very different signal than the equity market in terms of 2020 and what we can expect with growth? Yes, I think, um, you know, to some extent, both rates and equities are telling you that the Fed is very unlikely to take back the insurance cuts. So even if the consumer remains resilient, I think what we saw in the dot plot was very clear. Even the hawks don't really want to take back all of the insurance cuts. So if that's a positive tailwind for equities or, or all risk assets, I think that's fair. And, and, and that tells you why interest rates probably, do, you know, the tenure doesn't go above 2%. Where I think the signals are slightly different is the fact the equity market takes this trade deal to say, okay, all downside risk behind us. And the rates market saying, you know, not so fast. All we've had is one uh, tail risk being removed. We still have to deal with, I mean, um, look at the Eurozone PMIs. I'm actually very surprised that Treasuries this morning want to ignore that and just sort of go off the China positive data. There's still a lot of global growth headwinds, I think, for the U.S. next year. Priya, going into 2020, there's a view that the Fed is on hold, on hold through the whole of the year. I get the sense from you over the last couple of months that you don't think they are on hold. In fact, you think rates are going the other way, lower again. You still think that, Priya? I still do. I think the Fed has told us that the bar to cut is higher than it was over the last couple of months. So, you know, that's fair. But if the consumer shows any signs of losing momentum, and this is where I think the business investment side is key, because it's very clear that U.S. business investment has slowed pretty dramatically this year um, because of the uncertainty. I would argue it's an uncertainty shock, and that takes a while. And if that doesn't go away, then at some point it's going to affect the labor market and therefore the consumer. So we expect the Fed to actually restart easing by the middle of next year. Something we try to do on Bloomberg Surveillance is speak to grizzled pros like Priya Misra of TD Securities about whatever the uproar of the moment is. Priya, based on my reading coming back among particularly the gloom crew, the world's going to end 
like John at 11 a.m. this morning or something. Is that right? We we dash Thanks, into Tom. the repo liquidity world ending. So release the video today or Wednesday or yeah, get the video up before the world ends. Priya, should we have a sweat about the repo market into year end? So this is where, you know, I am worried about the economy, but on repo, I actually think the Fed has understood what's happening and they're using all the tools they have. And I think these tools are effective. So I'm actually not as worried on the repo year end and all strategists or or repo people are sort of divided into two camps. Those I think it's all going to end on December 31st. It's as bad as last year. I actually think last year was very different. You had the Fed that was letting the portfolio run off. They were not doing any temporary repo operations. What we heard last week was the Fed is actually now pumping almost 500 billion of repo around the turn. And some dealers, so some dealers are obviously capital constrained, balance sheet constrained. But the fact that these operations are all getting oversubscribed actually tells me that there are other dealers out there who are able to expand their balance sheet, take the Fed liquidity and distribute it in the system. So with the fact that the Fed is using this, plus they're adding to reserves permanently, I think they've understood, they've acknowledged the problem, which, yeah. which is what resulted in that September spike, and they're addressing it. Priya, this raises a really interesting question. If you take the ca- catastrophic view off the table, the end of the world, uh, that repo will ignite, uh, that we've all been uh, worried about. If you take that off the table, let's take a look at that half trillion dollars of stimulus, essentially, that the Federal Reserve has pumped into the financial system, especially if dealers are using it to make cheap loans. How much is that supporting risk assets? How much has that driven the rally uh, more than people have really given credit to? So, you know, the Fed will keep telling us that it's not QE, but if you look at reserves or look at the balance sheet, the Fed's balance sheet is growing. Now, I actually don't agree that this should be very positive for risk assets, but it's a sentiment issue. We've heard from the Fed for the last 10 years that QE helps boost yeah. risk asset, and I think that that is part of it. Um, it it's definite stimulus into the repo market. I, I don't know if it should result in higher stock market, but I, I think right. it is absolutely the, the Fed balance sheet is growing by a lot over the next month. Well, a lot. Does that vector matter? I mean, does the rate of change of the Fed balance sheet growth matter if they do it in a gradual measured way? Does that solve a lot of problems that you don't get with the abruptness that we've seen the last number of quarters? So the study is between stock and flow. They're fairly mixed. I would argue I it's, yeah, it's a combination yeah. of both, yeah. the stock and the flow that matters. But, you know, between over the last two months, they've already injected $200 billion. Remember, they're also buying bills. And my view is, I know they're only saying into the second quarter, I think they're buying bills almost all of next year. Because in an ample reserve regime, the Fed operations should not happen. So this $500 billion, let's say all $500 billion gets used, that means the Fed needs to buy $500 billion of bills to offset these repos over time so that's a pretty big stock and flow whichever way you look at it it's a huge increase in the balance sheet terrific briefing thank you so much priya misra td securities head of uh, global rate strategy This is a joy. Henrietta Trays with us with Veda Partners here with Futures Up 15, Dow Futures Up 59. And the joy of Henrietta on a Monday morning is you don't have time to read, and she's got a note that's wicked concise. And right at the top, Henrietta, you nail it. How about that enforcement mechanism?
The Mexicans are flying north because they're worried about the enforcement mechanism of labor in Mexico. And I don't even know what the enforcement mechanism is of phase one or phase 12 or whatever. How are we doing on enforcement mechanisms in a trade negotiation? Thanks so much for having me, Tom. Well, uh, the interesting thing about enforcement mechanisms um, and the way that it's been rolled out by USTR Lifehizer over the weekend sounds very much like what we expected. Um, the most important word here is timing. It takes time to enforce something, just a natural component of what it means to enforce something. So the way that I'm expecting this to roll out for investors to watch is that on a one-month, a two-month, and then a six-month basis, there's going to be a sort of rolling series of checks and balances much like what they're um, attempting to accomplish with Mexico. Um, And the way that it happens is that businesses get a discrete um, medium of communication with the administration. They'll start speaking with some working-level trade negotiators on a monthly basis, uh, on a bi-monthly basis. So every two months, they'll bump it up to the deputy director uh, at the USTR and see if they've worked out any of their issues, whether it's IP theft or forced technology transfer, or maybe China is stalling on purchasing its agriculture or bioengineered seeds. Um, And then on a six-month basis, USTR Lifehizer and Vice Premier Liu He, uh, I assume it will be Liu He, will be meeting to go through all those complaints from the U.S. side to make sure that they have been complying with this phase one so-called deal. Um, and so every six months, effectively, beginning, I'd say, June, July of 2020 is where we should roughly be uh, around that time. The U.S. side decides whether we want to ratchet up tariffs or we want to reduce tariffs further. Henrietta, um, so given the time. rolling given the rolling nature of this uh, deal, the fact that it, it sort of uh, is going to be implemented as we go, how much certainty does it really give businesses? Not a whole lot. And, you know, a lot of the response that we've gotten over the weekend has been mostly from trade associations saying they feel pretty comfortable about what is included in a phase one deal. But for businesses, unless you were assuming that these tariffs would be in place in perpetuity, which a lot of the big global manufacturers, sort of uh, the big multinational supply chains that we all you know, know and are familiar with, they are able to digest the fact that all these tariffs are going to be in place for the remainder of President Trump's tenure. Um, but the smaller mom and pop shops, they now have to face the reality that the 25% tariffs on $250 billion worth of goods are going to be in effect for at least the first half of next year, probably well into 2021. Um, and the only remedy we got here is that $120 billion worth of tariffs dropped from 15% to 75 So if you're a smaller multinational and you're shipping your goods from China, you're paying these tariffs for the foreseeable future, and that's not particularly helpful to them. Henrietta, let's talk about and just round out this conversation with the risk that this falls apart before it's fully implemented between the United States and China. I was listening to Ambassador Lighthizer speak on CBS just yesterday on Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan. I got the sense that there's a risk here, that the success on this depends on who implements the deal in China. Will it be the hardliners or the reformers? What's your sense of things, Henrietta, and the risk that this falls apart before it really gets implemented? Well, once again, we have a three to five week waiting period. So we're going to be transcribing these texts into legal uh, jargon for the next month, at least, which means it won't be signed until February. Um, based on what we saw from China and you know the extraordinary pomp and circumstance that went around their announcement at 11 o'clock p.m. their time on Friday, I don't 
think that we should expect China to blow up the deal and just say, hey, we're not going to comply. But I could definitely see this dragging on. Uh, if you'll recall, last time we got this close and didn't have legal text was in March of 2019. Mm-hmm. And we ultimately didn't get a phase one deal until uh, Friday. Yeah. So that was almost nine months later. I could definitely see right. a delay further from here. Great. Henry and Trace, thank you so much. Nice update there. And really the, the, the nite grite of Thanks, uh, trade. I mean, we forget that there's the some... How, how, how thick is the... Yeah, it's French. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.